Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. What does it look like to esteem someone as better than yourself? Listen to this letter. I know I shouldn't have done this, but I'm 83 years old and I was in the McDonald's drive-thru this morning and the young lady behind me leaned on her horn and started mouthing something obscene because I was taking too long to place my order. So when I got to the first window, I paid for her order along with my own. The cashier must have told her what I'd done because as I moved up, she leaned out the window and waved at me and mouthed thank you, obviously embarrassed that I had repaid her rudeness with such kindness. When I got to the second window, I showed them both receipts and took her food also and quickly (laughs) drove away. He continues, now she has to go back to the end of the queue and start all over again. He ends the letter with the motto, don't blow your horn at old people, they've been around a long time. (laughs) Just so you know, that's not what it looks like. For my part of the retreat today, we're going to talk about fighting. Why human beings fight, how they fight, and what we're supposed to do about it, fighting. If we could get a consensus across the spectrum of religions and philosophies and ideologies, we would see that human beings fight. Now, I know this is going to be news to a lot of you, because, but there's even fighting in church families. Not you guys, I'm talking about the Methodists. And really, it's a little ironic that we are at a church retreat since one of the definitions of retreat is to run from the enemy. But that's just it. Those in church are not the enemy, they're, well, they're our family. One thing I love about the Bible is that it addresses all the gritty and down-to-earth problems of life. And sadly, sometimes we just don't get along with each other. I'm going to spend almost the entirety of my time in verse 3, as I think it's the pivotal verse for what I want us to walk away with this morning. The Bible says you'll never understand the disease unless you understand the source. If you're, going to under, if you're going to treat a disease, not, you have to do not only description, but also prescription. You have to do not only diagnosis, but also remedy. But you won't have the right remedy if you don't do the right diagnosis. The Bible is going to tell us what the real root of human fighting is and also what the remedy is. Let's take a look at the diagnosis and then the remedy in this passage. Look at verse 1 with me. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion. As you go on the rest of the book of Philippians, you'll see that there were divisions in the church and there were some key figures who were pushing on each other. There was conflict. They were butting heads. This is Philippians chapter 4, verse 2. Paul writes, I urge Euodia and I urge Sintichi to live in harmony in the Lord. The old Bible teacher J. Vernon McGee called them Euodias and soon touchy. In other words, they were fighting. 
What's great here is Paul says, if you have any encouragement from being unified in Christ, any consolation in His love, any sharing of His Spirit, now those are powerful things. And yet they are not enough in themselves to keep people from fighting. He says, even though you have all these things, you're still fighting. And since you have all these things, keep these things in mind and stop fighting. That's what he's saying. There is something in the human heart so strongly inclining us to fighting that it's possible that even these powerful bonds that should be pulling us together aren't enough in themselves to stop us from fighting. The point is that because we have the divine injunction to be of one mind and one spirit, we must therefore, look at verse 2, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in the spirit, intent on one purpose. The Holy Spirit instructed our brother Paul to write these words. If Christ has been good to you, if he's been there for you, if he stood by you, then fulfill my joy by being like-minded. Paul is calling us to be unified. But let me say here that unity doesn't mean having unity at any cost. Believers must never compromise doctrines or principles that are clearly biblical. But to humbly defer to one another in secondary issues is a mark of spiritual strength, not weakness. It's a mark of maturity and love that God highly values because it promotes and preserves harmony within the church. Paul's desire for us this morning is to be like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. He's describing a unified human community. And really, that's what we all want. We all want to live in a community where there's no fighting and no divisions, where in its place there's love, oneness of spirit, and oneness of mind. Instead, we have a cancel culture, political polarization, and constant war. You might say, but he's actually talking about the church right here. Right. That's the point. The point is there is something so wrong with the human heart, so wrong that even inside a body like the church where everybody shares the same faith, there can still be constant fighting. One man said the worst fist fight he ever saw in his entire life was two Baptist deacons fighting over the doctrine of sanctification. Now, many churches are filled with fighting and divisions, just like the rest of the world. So the question is, why? Because there is something wrong with the human heart. What is that? He mentions it. He says, if you're going to have oneness, then do nothing out of selfish ambition or empty conceit. Look at verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit. But with humility, consider one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. This is universal. You might say, well, I know people who are like that, who are selfish like that. 
But do you know who Paul is writing to? He is talking to the Philippians. If you read all of the letters of Paul, you will see this is the absolute best of the churches. This is the only church that Paul is not talking to about all kinds of difficulties and problems. This is the only church that he talks to where he doesn't have to mention any kind of heresy. This is clearly the healthiest church that he writes to. This is so clearly the best church that he is so warm throughout this entire letter. If Paul is telling us this morning that even the best of people in the best of churches will be utterly dominated by the spirit of rivalry unless they watch out for it all of the time. You see, selfishness is a consuming and a destructive sin. And the first and inevitable casualty is the person who manifests it, even if nobody else is harmed. First of all, it says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. That's a single Greek word, which means, believe it or not, hyper-fighting. I think a better translation would be a spirit of rivalry. It's one thing to fight in order to live, but this is a spirit that lives to fight. There's a big difference between fighting to live and living to fight. So it's not surprising that rejecting selfishness is listed first, since it is the root of every other sin. It was by placing his will above God's that Satan fell. And it was by placing their own wills before God's that Adam and Eve first brought sin into the world. And since then, it has been at the heart of every subsequent sin. At the mundane level, the Bible tells us the essence of sin is self-centeredness. The essence of sin is always wanting things our way. Now what happens, though, is the more selfish you are, the more proud you are, the more self-absorbed you are, the more you want things your way and only your way. Do you know what happens? You become boring. Go ahead. Always want things your way. Always only talk about your issues. Always center everything on yourself. Pretty soon you're going to look around and you're going to find out that nobody is there listening to you. So what is the cause of that kind of fighting? Empty conceit. Now understandably, a person with such conceit considers himself always to be right and expects others to agree with him. The only unity he values is always centered on himself or herself. Empty conceit is arrogant pride, or as Romans 11.25 says, it is being wise in your own estimation. Now, the ancient Greeks did not admire humility. They thought that it was a mark of weakness. But even they recognized that a person's view of himself could become so exaggerated and so presumptuous and so contemptible, the term for such exalted pride is a word still used in English and many other modern languages. It's the word hubris. Empty conceit is an English translation of a particular Greek word. It's one word. The Greek word is kinodoxia. Now, kinos means to empty, and doxa is glory. And so when you put it together, it means to be empty of glory, or we're going to call it glory empty. So what does it mean to be glory empty? 
Among other things, it means to be starved for validation and approval. It means to not be assured of your significance and value before God. It means to be starving always for respect and honor. It means to be cosmically insecure. It means to feel like I don't matter and I don't count. Yet if you're out there constantly trying to get that from everybody else, you're going to feel like you're always on a treadmill. You're going to feel like you're that little squirrel in that cage just running and running but never getting anywhere. The Bible has the only answer for why we are truly glory-starved. It's because we were made for God, but we've turned away from God. And because we turned away from God, there's an infinite-sized vacuum in us that was made to be filled with the smile of the infinite God. Your, your life was made to be filled with the delight of the majestic and eternal God. Ecclesiastes says that God has placed eternity in the heart of every man. That means there is something in us that tells us that this earth is not really our home. Paul says, do nothing out of glory hunger. What does that mean? Paul is saying and reminding us that human beings are all hungry for that glory that we have lost. This is telling us fundamentally that the deepest response of our soul is that we sense that we don't matter and we are deeply afraid of not mattering. You see, the worst thing for a human being is not to be hated. The worst thing for a human being is not to be opposed. The worst thing for a human being is not to be vilified and called bad. The worst thing for a human being is to be ignored. The thing we are most afraid of is that we have no glory and are just insignificant. This is the feeling. I don't count. I don't matter. I'm transient. So I need assurance that I'm okay, that I'm important, that I count. This is the condition of the human soul. And we are so afraid of that, that apart from Christ, we will try to manufacture success and love and approval. And we'll do all sorts of things to manufacture that glory. And if anybody suggests that we're not important, if anybody snubs us, then we may go ballistic. Now, it's not rational, because there is a fundamental instability in all of our hearts. A few years ago, there was an interview with Madonna in Vanity Fair, and in it she said, I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I'm always struggling with that fear. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, and then I get to another stage and think, I'm mediocre and uninteresting. And I find a way to get myself out of that. Again and again, my drive in life is from this horrible feeling of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. Listen to what she says. She's not afraid of being bad. She says, my drive in life is from this horrible fear of just being mediocre. 
What's that mean? To be ignored. To be faceless like everybody else. That is the ultimate horror of the human being. The interesting thing is we are taught from a young age that success and its cousin money will make us secure, important, and happy. But it's time to tell the truth about the high number of people who have used all their means to achieve money, power, and glory, and still in the end, they self-destruct. Think about a drug addict for a minute. The first time that drug addict has that first high, they are trapped. Because from then on, they're going to need more and more of that same substance to get that high. Think of Madonna. As she goes on, she says, you actually end up having to have use more and more of the substance, and yet you are now getting diminishing returns. That is, you have less and less pleasure from it until you finally get to the place where you're driven to destructive levels of use, all the while experiencing increasing emptiness inside. She says it takes more and more success to get that initial high. And then you can't get it back anymore. And you're working yourself to death. And you're getting less and less satisfaction. If it is true that we are all glory starved, that would explain the culture of success. Do you know what's really sad and tragic? Madonna is now 65 years old. And her glory days... They are long behind her. I think of that verse that says, What does it profit someone to gain the entire world and in the process lose their very soul? Now where does this feeling come from? The Bible gives us a theological answer. The Bible says it comes from sin. We are star for glory, and so we try to manufacture our own glory. But when you decide, only I and I alone have the right to determine what's right and wrong for myself. I and I alone will decide how I live. When the human race did that, we disintegrated. We began to lose our glory. Physically, we became subject to death. And now we know that the glory is gone. Why are we afraid of death? Why do we get so upset about death? Animals don't. Do you know why? Because we long for the glory we originally had. We know in the deepest part of our beings that we were built for glory. And yet we know that we are passing away and slowly decaying. Why are we this way? Think about the Bible says, I don't have a better diagnosis. The Bible says we were originally made to live forever. But because we turned away from God, we are now all fading. We were made to never be forgotten. We were made to stand in the presence of God and enjoy His favor. We were made to last. But because we turned away from God, we are all dying. And we know that we're fading. And we're worried that we're going to be forgotten. We feel like a wave upon the sand. You do realize that in just 50 years, no one is going to remember that we even existed probably. But here's the catch 22. The more we know we lack glory, the more we try to manufacture glory. 
And the more cranky we get when people don't treat us as if we're not glorious. The smaller we feel we are, the bigger we have to act. You know what the irony of that is? The more important you act, the less important you become. And the less important you become, the more important you have to act. Our friends, I tell you something. Anything less profound than this in terms of analysis will not get to the heart of the disease. You say, well, what's the remedy? The answer is intriguing. It's all summed up in one word, and that is the word humility. Paul says, because of your emptiness, because of your pride, therefore in humility consider others as being better than yourselves. Let's first of all look at that word humility. What is it? It's a simple Greek word that means gentle, modest, and deferential. Outside of the New Testament, this Greek word, whenever it's used in other kinds of ancient Greek literature, it's always used in a derogatory manner. Why? Because in the Greco-Roman society, to be deferential, gentle, and modest was the attitude of a slave. And that society only valued strength. They believed social stability was based on fear. People had to respect you. If they treated you with respect, then your society would hold together. And the only way to have respect was if people feared you. So traits like gentleness, deference, and modesty, well, that was for slaves. Yet the Bible uses this word 270 times, and it's almost always used in a positive manner. In verse 3, Paul writes, Do nothing out of selfishness or empty conceit, but in humility. Consider others as being better than yourselves. That phrase in humility is critical in understanding this passage, for it provides an undergirding philosophy of what we're talking about. You see, my carnal mind doesn't work this way. My carnal mind wants to find fault with the person next to me so I can feel better about myself. It shames me to say that I can be that petty. What governs your relationship to people? It can either be your needs or it can be the truth. You can either come to understand the truth through your needs or you can understand your needs through the truth. And if the truth governs your needs, then you can have a decent discussion with someone. If you say, okay, I have my needs and you have your needs, well, let's see what the truth says. Let's be reasonable about this. Let's think about it. But if your needs govern your understanding of the truth, if, you're, if you let your needs be the bottom line and not the truth, you're always going to be agitated in some way. In other words, you're going to be a person who says, by definition, I'm right because, well, it's me. By definition, my needs are right because they're my needs. This is the complete opposite of humility. It's from the same point that Jesus began his incarnation when he humbled himself, which Pastor Chris is going to cover this afternoon. And so, if Jesus, the completely glorious, sinless Son of God, chose the path of humility, how much more should we? Think about that. 
Jesus had no reason for humility, while we have every reason for it. Helmut Tillicke was a German pastor who pled with the Germans to remain true to the cross and reject the swastika. He wrote, Jesus rose up from the place where the kingdoms of this world shimmered before him, where crowns flashed and banners rustled and hosts of enthusiastic people were ready to acclaim him and instead quietly walked the way of poverty and suffering to the cross. And he is our example this morning. What is humility? Well, first of all, it is counter to being glory starved. Don't be glory starved, Paul says, but rather be humble. Whatever that must mean is whatever humility is, it means some kind of inner fullness. If what makes you fight is an inner emptiness that you're trying to fill with people's approval and other things, then humility must mean the opposite of that which is inner fullness. Humility is being defined and determined by what you habitually look at. If you're empty, you're going to be habitually looking at yourself. You're always saying, am I getting mine? How am I doing? How do I look? You're always focused on yourself. That's what you're habitually looking at. You're empty. But if you are full of the Holy Spirit, you have the capacity to look away. You have the ability to start looking at other people. You're not always thinking about yourself or caring about yourself because there's now a fullness there. Only when you're hungry do you think about food, even at Calorie Chapel. If you're hungry, it's very hard to walk through Walmart. But when you're completely full, you can walk right through that place and not care about the food. That way you can just pop in there, get your AAA batteries, and not walk out with $30 worth of junk food. If you are full, you're not thinking of yourself all the time. That's the reason in the very famous place of C.S. book, Mere Christianity, there's a chapter called The Great Sin. And it's all about pride. That's where he says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. You don't think about yourself. Why? Because you're full. Now, when you and I think of proud people, we almost think of arrogant people, but that's not the only form of pride. We think of proud people who are self-promoters and are bragging all the time, but that's not the only form of pride. Because ultimately, pride, the opposite of humility, is this insecurity, this need for honor, this need for glory. And that can be manifested as much as an inferiority feeling as a superiority feeling. What do I mean? If you're always down on yourself, if you're always beating yourself up, it is because you're absorbed in thinking about yourself. You're always looking at yourself and wondering, how am I coming across? Let me press this a little bit on you. In the screw tape letters, there's a devil named Screw Tape. He's given advice to a junior devil on how to tempt a human being whom he calls a patient. Screw Tape says, I see your patient has become humble. Have you drawn his attention to that fact? Catch him at a moment when he is really poor in spirit and smuggle into his mind the gratifying reflection, By Jove, I'm being humble. 
and almost immediately, pride, pride at his own humility, will appear. As I finish up this morning, what's so brilliant about this text is Paul says, I want you to have humility. He describes it. Each of you should not only look to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Look at that. He didn't say, hate yourself. He didn't say, don't have any interests, don't have any goals, don't have any needs. He didn't say that. Humility is what you are looking at. It's not noticing yourself because you're not glory hungry. It's not always being worried about how you're looking. Plus, it's not always being down on yourself. It's not always being up on yourself. It's just not talking and thinking about yourself so much. The best way I can illustrate this is with body parts. If you go to work Monday and somebody says, man, my elbows feel great today. You're going to say, well, the only reason why someone would say that is if their elbows didn't feel great yesterday. Because ordinarily, if your elbows are working fine, they don't draw attention to themselves. If somebody says, boy, my knees are really bending well today. When I sit down, they bend, and when I I stand up, they unbend. It's just incredible. In fact, I figure it must be that their knees weren't bending so great the day before. You would never even think about that unless there was something wrong. You don't think of your knees unless there's something wrong with them. You don't think of your elbows unless there's something wrong with them. Now let's look at your ego, your sense of self. If we were truly healthy, we wouldn't even think about how we're doing or how we're looking or what people are saying about us. We wouldn't even think about it. We would be looking at others and their interests instead. But if you're always thinking about yourself and how you're looking, you're always going to be getting your feelings hurt. You're going to feel insulted and you're going to feel snubbed. Humility is the key to the Christian life and the Christian walk. If you come to God and say, I want to have a relationship with you. Look at all my accomplishments. Look what I've done. God is going to turn to you and say, you don't know who I am. And you don't know who you are. And you don't know what the cross of Jesus means. But if you come and say, oh Lord, I repent. I need your grace and I have nothing of which to merit your favor. But I would ask that you would save me for Jesus' sake. That's humility, repentance, and faith. You're saved by grace. You're saved through faith. You know what I think that is? That's humility. The only thing that can kill you, the only thing that can destroy you eternally is a lack of humility. We can lack almost any other thing, but not that, because that is what connects us to God. In fact, if you want to think about it, basically God's plan of salvation is to lift up the humble. And so let's embrace the life of humility starting today. Pray with me. Lord, I admit that in front of these people that humility doesn't come natural to me. I can be proud, petulant, and selfish. But I've lived long enough and I've walked long enough with you to know that your ways are always the right way and the best way to navigate this life. So drive these truths into our hearts this morning. 
For we want to be like Jesus who identified himself as being meek and lowly in heart. Make us more like him, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.